You're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're doing an exit interview with Sochi Nemeka, who announced in April that she'll be departing from her leadership role with the New York Working Families Party, which she took the helm of back at the end of 2019. Welcome back to the program, Sochi. So glad to be here with you, David. Thank you. So why was now the right time for you to step away from your role as uh, director of the New York Working Families Party? I've been incredibly grateful for the experience I've had in the past uh, three to four years in my role. And it was a moment where like the personal and the political and organizational uh, seemed to signal the same things. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to go on maternity leave. And so I was already thinking about um, how to spend my time and how to, how to allocate work versus home time in this moment. We were coming out of a three-year big push of these 2020 to 2022 very peak election years. Now in 23, we're across the state collectively, we're in a planning and preparing for our posture for the next run of 24 to 26. And so it felt like the right time to really be doing the long-term planning and thinking about where we are organizationally, which is like in a very healthy place. We have a fantastic team uh, that I felt very proud to, to bring on over the past three years. We have a really uh, cohesive and supportive group of partners, organizational partners, elected partners who feel committed to the next couple of years with the party. Um, and as an organizer, I really felt that we had the infrastructure we needed for a director to take the party in a new direction, um, in a you know accelerated direction moving forward. And I really want to support that and have it not be about where I was, particularly in my life, but where the organization needs to be. So it just felt like the right moment. I'm grateful to be in an organization where I could take a real maternity leave and have a team that's ready to run um, towards like the big fights ahead. Well, looking back at your tenure, how would you like your time as director of the New York Working Families Party to be remembered? <laughs> that's a big question. You know, I mean, as political people, we often look at the external victories, um, of which there are many, right? Of, you know, there was a whole host of progressive, diverse, community grounded uh, slate of electeds who won in 2020, the peak of the pandemic, who really made the crisis narrative feel clear and urgent to voters, and who brought that sense of urgency in their in their legislating. You're thinking of, um, you know, the years that, uh, Jessica Gonzalez Rojas and Khalil Anderson, Samra Brook, Demond Meek, right up and down the state, we have leadership that really was propelled to their community uh, through the um, George Floyd moments through pandemic to really run and lead as though New Yorkers needed to really feel government have their back. You know, where I grew up um, and I'm raising my kid now in CD16, uh, being able to help support Jamal Bowman win this congressional seat in one of the most, you know, racially and economically segregated districts in the country. People don't think. I live in Mount Vernon, you know, across the hill is Bronxville, right? There's a huge gap uh, of, of opportunity, an income and this uh, education gap in this district. And to have a working class Black educator uh, be representing our, our, our voice and our district in Congress felt like a, you know, a seismic shift. You know, city council leadership, seeing the Progressive Caucus be rebuilt in the city council, um, seeing, you know, uh, A.G. James take on 
uh, Trump and really to think about kind of the pipeline of candidates that come come through the party. There's been a lot of electoral victories that have been super exciting. As someone who wants to build organization, growing from three chapters to, you know, dozen more in the past three years and having regular people do politics every day in their home city, county, uh, speaking directly to their legislators, running strong campaigns, knocking on doors, having that infrastructure for party and really trying to breathe um, what a grassroots working people's party looks like. A lot of those things are exciting. Taxing the wealthy in the part of the pandemic, I think, is one of the biggest things I hope that we can continue to do in our city of just extreme need. There's no reason why the wealthy in New York should not be paying their, their fair share. Uh, and I think the pandemic made that clear for people. We can't forget those lessons learned that we have to invest in our safety, a safety net. And those kinds of big structural reform fights are what the party is most proud of and what we need to continue to do. For listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with Sochi Nemeka, the departing director of the New York Working Families Party. Well, thinking about the pandemic, and, and I guess putting aside the human toll of the pandemic, which is obviously a, a tragedy, was the arrival of COVID-19, which is obviously not something you anticipated uh, because it came shortly after you took over the WFP, was that something that ended up creating opportunities in the political realm? Or is the pandemic something where you look back and go, darn, that really negatively impacted uh, what I was hoping to do with, with the party and held us back in some regards? There are obviously challenges, right? The uh, tragedy, human tolls. Um, there are structural and kind of tactical challenges of how do we suddenly run a program online? Uh, if, you, if you remember, you know, petitioning uh, was not suspended during during um, the pandemic. The primary date did not change. Um, so everyone was still very much running program. And I think it really allowed us to skill up on digital outreach, um, ensure people stay connected, uh, have a sense of political home, even though people were not in the same place. Uh, so we definitely learned a lot and built a lot of new systems and tools for ourselves as a party and for our candidates to be able to just connect with voters uh, in this moment. But I think in terms of, I think about kind of the narrative or the moment of COVID, obviously COVID caught all of us by surprise. Um, we were not expecting it, but in some ways we were prepared to make sense of it. Uh, you know, the party, the WFP and our candidates have been talking about and have been living through crises, right? Crises of income inequality, um, a broken healthcare system, police brutality, systemic racism. All of these are crises that have um, shaped our political understanding. And therefore we already had a framework around crisis. And that position only became more applicable in that moment. Uh, and so why we were like thrown off and gutted like everyone else about the way that COVID devastated our communities and we had to figure out operational challenges. Our candidates, I think they won and they moved people because they were able to speak about crisis and the real scale of solutions it demanded, both accurately and honestly. If I can give examples, just because I'm, I'm here in Westchester, so I spent most of my time campaigning close to home, you know, because my, my, my son was home from school and we still went out, we still went to talk to people. Um, so Bowman, a public school principal in the Bronx, 
had been talking about racist policing, had been talking about income inequality and how it affected his students and families in the Bronx for years. Um, Mondor Jones, who grew up in Section 8 housing and on food stamps, knew firsthand what it felt like to grow up in a family that couldn't afford rent or, or put food on the table. So no one needed to translate, for example, for those two candidates when they're speaking to voters because they understood what crisis was. They've been living through them and fighting to avert them since long before COVID, since long before the George Floyd uprisings. And um, that resonated with voters. So I think that we were prepared ideologically, maybe um, you know, politically for crisis uh, and the solutions, right, led by progressives and then really em embodied in the Biden moment and by Senate Dems uh, about what it looks like to respond at scale, that felt like a real political opportunity. Based on your last three plus years as director of the WFP, is there any information or advice you wish you had upon taking over the party <laughs> in 2019? <laughs> If I had it, I may not have taken the job. So there's there's reason in many ways to be excited and kind of um, wide-eyed in, in many ways. And so I was brought in with a lot of excitement, the wave of energy on progressive races up and down the state and around the country, right? The IDC being defeated in, in New York, um, you know, the Ilhan and AOC and uh, you know, the mayor of Jackson, this is like, there was a, there was a lot of energy um, and there was a, the, the counter energy of the kind of Trump resistance moment. And we were looking to make political home and to um, build something robust and durable. So the whole kind of narrative around progressive flukes uh, gets tossed out. I think what is, you know, what is kind of most interesting about the job is that one, electoral law in New York is incredibly Byzantine and confusing and in many ways meant for party one party rule. Um, and so the work of building and maintaining a third party is, is complex. I had to learn a lot very quickly. I probably learned more about the law in those first two months. Than I learned in three years of law school, uh, but we really had to figure out how to make the law work for, um, for what we were doing. I was excited to learn from a lot of people who had been in the assembly and the Senate for a long time, whether it was Gustavo Rivera or in that moment, you know, Diana Richardson uh, or whomever really talk about what it looks like to have, to be like a values-based leader in Albany and the ways in which that is challenging, um, exciting, and just a real desire to have a bigger group of people um, who can identify, you know, as working families, Democrats, and felt really excited to to build that um you know we learn a lot through these cycles we've had you know last year through district we had two uh, primaries uh you know getting biden on the ballot for wfp there's so there's always so many micro tests but for me it's like are we consistently growing what is our north star how do we advance together and for me holding on to the vision of what the party can be makes the uh kinks a lot more manageable and after a quick break, we'll have more with Sochi Nimica, the departing director of the New York Working Families Party, the liberal third party she has led for the last three plus years. When we get back, we'll talk about the WFP's future role in New York electoral politics, the ramifications of publicly financed state elections, and much, much more. 
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation with Sochi Nimica, the departing director of the New York Working Families Party, the liberal third party she has led for the last three-plus years. When you and I talked last year about the gubernatorial primary, you said, quote, we see our role as shaping a democratic field. Is that the role of the WFP more broadly when it comes to elections in New York now and moving forward? Or can it go beyond Democratic primaries in state races, especially uh, state legislative races? I think that we have we have a broad mandate and a lot of space um, to grow, right? When it comes to electoral contests, given just the makeup of the New York State's, you know, political body, the fact that Democrats have the highest, you know, uh, registration rates in the state, et cetera, uh, to, if, if our goal is to achieve governing power for working people, a primary place to fight is in Democratic primaries, right, to ensure that the most progressive Democrat gets out and then has a chance actually to govern and to build an agenda around the things that we care about, uh, healthcare for all, a real climate action plan, you know, housing dignity, et cetera. You know, there are also tremendous other opportunities, whether it is special elections or general election contests, whether it is caucus formation in different bodies to kind of aggregate people's energy and have a shared agenda. And uh, where it's like building real grassroots power to ensure that we're not a political party that is shackled to donor interests. I think that we have many roles to play. I think fundamentally what we have, not only in New York State, but in other places are, you know, dominant parties in government that's co-opted by the wealthy few, whether it's the real estate industry, whether it's wealthy donors, whether it's charter school executives, etc. And working people deserve to have a similar relationship of proximity and like co-optation, right, of government as the wealthy do. And for us, we want to build the power, whether it's through elections, whether it's through legislative fixes or structural reform, to ensure that working people actually have a government that has its back. And so all of these things, whether it's elections or whatever, those are all opportunities and sites of contestation for power. And our job is to figure out how to use a system and to hack and to shift the system that we have to ensure that people can actually live lives of dignity in New York. Elections and primaries are one very important role, but it's not the only way that we can do that. Well, the state's election system is poised for a major change starting in 2024 with the advent of public campaign financing. How, if at all, is that going to change or should it change Uh, the WFP and the way it approaches uh, elections, what would be your advice to your successor on how to uh, approach this brave new world? This cycle, we have an opportunity to bring in small dollars, which means that grassroots candidates can spend more time actually building with their communities and have a real chance to win, even if they don't have the Rolodex uh, of connections. There's so many implications for this. 
for anyone who goes out to recruit candidates, you know, you always ask like, who do you know? Um, what are the connections you have? Where did you go to school? Like, do you know any wealthy people? Uh, and obviously that really then limits number of, the type of person that you can run successfully for office. And then you also then are affected by how you spend your time when you're, when you're running. So we know that this is healthy and good and necessary for a democracy. We have to, you know, as we say, win the win, right? We won the actual fact of it. Now we have to show that it is a winning um, uh, introduction to our political system and really ensure that as many people as possible, incumbents and new candidates are running in the system and every year we have to make it better. So I would definitely say, you know, not only to, to uh, my successor, but to candidates, how do we really design a system where in each district you have, you know, 25 or so committee people who are focused on building a pot of money for a candidate of their choice, who, who then feels like they have a team of people they're accountable to. Uh, they're not private donors. They're not kind of shadowy, um, you know, backroom figures and make it really enticing to run clean grassroots campaigns. And over time, we have to get the big money out of politics. This makes us able to compete with the big money, but doesn't remove the corrosive effect um, that uh, big money has. And so we have to make this real next year and really run full steam to make sure it only gets bigger each year. Do you have any regrets from your time as head of the WFP? Are there any decisions you'd like a, a do-over on, for example? think of things as regrets um there obviously were a lot of external conditions that were outside of our control that made us have really tough decisions right last year in the split primaries uh and redistricting a lot of tough conversations and decisions have had came out of that moment the you know mayor's race in 2021 was a really challenging right because of candidates that were you know that um uh, were caught up in, in things outside of our control. If anything, I would say that, um, and a real reason why I feel ready and excited for someone to come in for this year is having the ability to plan in advance, right? Dropped into 2020, you have three cycles tight. Right now, um, this year, we get to think ahead about what the next three years can be and not see each cycle as separate, but really opportunities to build a cohesive multi-year approach. Um, uh, we get to build more uh, slowly and intentionally with partners in labor up and down the state. We get to really think about the um, imperatives that come with each district. And so um, for me, I, I just think that the opportunity to be organized and to keep the coalition together is one that I think everyone deserves. And had I started a little bit earlier in 2019, perhaps you'd have had that opportunity for the years um, following. But I think being able to, yeah, have the time before a long, heavy, very visible cycle is very important for a leader to get. And I'm excited for my team to have this time to do that. Lastly, on the policy front, ever since 2019, it seems like New York progressives have been largely on defense when it comes to criminal justice issues, as opposed to really getting some major wins uh, in 2019 and before, mm. how, if at all, can that dynamic 
change? And what do you think would be the WFP's role in, in reversing this conversation in Albany? Absolutely. I mean, this is something I actually spent a lot of time thinking about, something that's personally important to me and has been really just disorienting to see the cynical, kind of fear-mongering approach that our Democrats at the head of you know our state and New York City are advancing about like landmark historic civil rights reform. The cynicism of continuing to advance claims around bail reform despite any evidence demonstrating that crime, any increase in crime has anything to do with bail reform, not only speaks to a negative approach to progress in people, individual people, people's lives and have black and brown and low-income people's ability to have actual equal justice in the law, but also speaks to lack of imagination about how we actually address public safety. I think we have all of the answers and we have to build the political will to fund those answers. When you ask people what the solutions to crime are, they point to affordable housing, they point to safer and more accessible and broader transit, youth jobs, a sense of security in, in their communities. People know the answers and we've all had to have seen multiple experiments, violence interruption, deep investments through a stronger social safety net that do reduce crime. And we have to have the political will to invest and advance those opportunities. The moment of really pushing, forcing our democratic leaders to put forth a vision of public safety that is not built on incarceration, discrimination, segregation, and racism, that it actually is about reducing harm and violence in our communities and ensuring that people have what they need to thrive. That is what we should be putting out as the imperative of our moment. It is shameful that every year, the past three years, we've gone back to tweaking this law uh, despite having no proof and really catering to the most reactionary elements and to the post and to the right wing, et cetera. Like it is just, it is, it is shameful uh, and it's a huge missed opportunity. And we will see, we'll slide back into this decades long fight uh, with mass incarceration, what it does to erode any sense of community or possibility, you know, any sense of possibility in our communities. That's what we're about to inherit if we do not interrupt this. So I do think it really is about politics. It's like not about social science. It's not about um, coming up with some new program or technology. The facts are there. The money needs to be moved and Democrats need to own a narrative around order and, and, and safety that is not purely responsive, reactive, and pandering um, to the right wing, to moderates, to suburbanites, et cetera. We can lead in a different way. So it sounds like you feel like the path forward to accomplish your vision for New York on the criminal justice front is to basically demonstrate some political courage. Political courage and investment, right? I think it requires both. Political courage to move the funds, investment, what we know actually makes us safe, and a rejection and a realization that we came out of a scourge of mass incarceration and we said never again, right? In the moment when um, Black lives and kind of policing violence and all of that was at the forefront of everyone's mind across lines of difference, color, white liberals, et cetera, People are willing to say that. 
as that moment dissipates, we're sliding back into kind of the moral vacuum of a pro-carceral system. We have to interrupt that because we know it does not make us safe. It does not advance us in any way. And that's honestly, I believe that's very lazy thinking. We have to lead in a new way. We have to invest in a serious way in programs that we know actually keeps people feeling secure and safe. Well, finally, a personal question. Um, my experience in engaging with you is that you are a very serious and intense person, and <laughs> you obviously care a lot about the issues that you work on. So in moving away from the WFP, are you going to be able to disconnect and like take uh -huh. a breather, or are you just going to be constantly fretting and worrying and feeling disconnected and like you're not playing a role when you leave this job? Um, I'm a serious, intense person. I love the work that I've been called to do. And I've done it in many different ways. I started off as a labor organizer. I've done it through community work. I'm really proud to be able to leave the party. I think the work sits with you no matter what your role is. I'm a Black woman and a mother in New York State, always looking around and thinking, how can we do better? And so whether I, you know, I'm a salaried employee somewhere or I have a title or not, that's profoundly what moves me forward. And also I know that there are different seasons and I had a very intense generative season leading the party. And right now, you know, I want to take care of my soon-to-be two kids and be close to my family. And I have another season coming up. And so I think that I have part of my faith and love of doing this work long-term is that we wear different hats, we play different roles, and the work continues. And right now I'm looking forward to doing some nesting and snuggling time, but I don't think that will totally keep me out of the picture. Well, we've been speaking with Sochi Nemeka. She is the departing director of the New York Working Families Party, which she has led since late 2019. Sochi, thank you so much for making the time and good luck with your next adventure. Oh, thank you, thank you so much, David. And thanks for everyone who continues to support the party. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.